It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. And what we hope will be the first of many to come. To the tune of Grandmaster Flash, the Furious Five, the message, and the message that was given out just moments ago by our owner-operator, John Katsimatidis of Red Apple Media, our parent company, and obviously its primary uh, concern, WABC, now the number one news talk station in the nation again, as he's resurrected it uh, from the graveyard, is that he is going to put on programming that tries to bring back both a uh, liberal and a conservative perspective from time to time on the airwaves, give both points of view uh, a valid consideration, and then let our many listeners uh, all over the world uh, be able to figure for themselves. We not only have the listening capacity uh, uh, on the app of WABC at WABCradio.com. You can get the stream. But also the TV network that John has put together at WABC Radio. Dot TV, so you can get it all different ways. And in advance of what will be the Guardian Angel anniversary tomorrow, 43 years that we will celebrate. We're in 13 countries, 130 cities, and John Katsimatidis has been a supporter all during this process. He also has uh, been a supporter and a friend over the years of Anthony Weiner, who joins me today. Uh, and will continue this forum uh, each and every Saturday. Anthony? How much has New York City changed in 43 years? Man, oh, man. You've been around a while, brother. Good yeah. to see you. We've gone full cycle. Uh, what we thought was we were back uh, to a point where we were the safest city uh, in America. We were the economic engine. And now we seem to be sliding in the abyss. And you grew up in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Brooklyn, and we had an opportunity to see it all. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s. You know, my parents grew bought a limestone duplex in a park block in Park Slope for $30,000. They're the smart – those are the smart wieners, those guys. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I literally thought they put the graffiti on the subway at the manufacturing plant. Like I never saw until the last 25 years or 20 years or so a subway without graffiti. But you, you guys have done a remarkable job in all those times. I remember – when you came onto the scene, you were seen as this like iconic, like, okay, this is a moment for New York. Like when people want to say, all right, how has it gotten? It's gotten so bad that these guys have to go out there dressed up in their red outfits. But it's uh, certainly a pleasure to be here. If, if the, if the blue beret store wasn't closed today, I would have gotten a blue beret for our, <laughs> ch- our ideal here. But it is interesting. I spent uh, the week in Florida. I never ever leave New York City, uh, but it's the first time that I traveled after the lockdown and pandemic. And as you know, a lot of our fellow New Yorkers, folks uh, from Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, they flocked down there in huge numbers. And when they had uh, seen the uh, media reports that you and I would be doing this show on Saturday, some of the ex-New Yorkers, they were reflecting on the times you ran for mayor. And you know what the one ad that resonated in their mind of the many ads that you did? Because if you hadn't had your, your personal uh, failings, there's no doubt in my mind, in other people's minds, you would have been uh, the mayor of the city of New York. Was that time you were sitting on that block in Park Slope talking about how you grew up on that block and playing stickball. Yeah. And because I was commissioner of stickball at that time, having been appointed back when Rudy Giuliani first got elected, 
it's sort of like what what brings us all together, those games we played as youngsters in the streets and the parks and the playgrounds of New York. Well, it's true. So, uh, Ed Koch used to have this thing that when someone would stop him and say, Mr. Mayor, how can it be? How come it can't be like it used to be? He would always say, Madam, it was never like you think it used to be. But there were these certain things that were touchstones to growing up in New York. And I remember when we made that ad, we were just kind of trying to put some stuff in the can. And I, you know, they said, what did you do when you were here like, as a kid? I said, well, all we really did was either played football um, from from uh, manhole cover to manhole cover or played stickball from manhole cover to manhole cover. That's I mean, this was it. This was our entire playground. And I know it sounds nostalgic. I don't want us to sound like, hey, like our parents, you know, we used to do this. We used <laughs> to do that. But uh, those are the things. I mean, th- those are the New York City experiences that I think somewhere on a warm day like today, even though it's the middle of winter, some kid is out there dusting off his, his, his stickball bat and his baldine or his, or his super pinky, whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, those are the that was the, the kind of campaign that I wanted to have because I think that people long for a certain sense of neighborhood New York and they like that kind of stuff. And I think, frankly, it's the kind of campaign that you waged and to some degree the kind of campaign that Eric Adams waged. I think everyone's trying to – aspiring to that same sensibility about getting New York to what it used to be. Well, uh, being a consummate New Yorker as you are, you would be seen with your new New York Mets cap wherever you went. You see a picture of Anthony Weenie. You see video – you had the New York Met cap on, do or die, you were a Met fan. Uh, I, like uh, Rudy Giuliani at the time, Yankee fan. We hated the Mets. I mean, that was sort of a sign. Did you actually hate the Yankees? And why did you choose on, the Mets? Ro- rooting up? for the Yankees is like rooting for U.S. Steel. You know what I mean? How can you root for them? I'm a, I'm a middle-class underdog guy from the boroughs. I'm going to root for the, the $200 million payroll guys. But if I'm to be completely honest... My brother Jason liked the Yankees, so I had to like the Mets. I, you know, I, I think May, it's interesting. Brooklyn is a weird one because you understand that the Bronx is certainly that's Yankee territory. N- N- Brooklyn, and maybe your experience is different, had a very neighborhood by neighborhood Yankee or Met affiliation. But for me, I kind of liked. Remember, I'm, I'm born in in 1964. My Mets were not the 69 Mets. Mine were the 72, 73, 74 Mets. Mine were the Felix Mian Mets. Mine were the Bud Harrelson Mets. So I, um, you know, it's a lot of it is the experience that, that you started with. Like, no one sat me down and said, son, you're going to be a Mets fan. It was nothing like that. But I can't remember a time I, I didn't. But I'll tell you a funny story. When, the, when I was in the city council, when the, when the uh, Yankees won their World Series, I guess it was in 96, and um, they had – you know, all of the city councilmen wanted to get in on the action. They had the parade down the Canyon of Heroes. And so they had this one uh, one float where they just put all of, like, the B-level politicians on. And they would, you know, as you went down, there would be cheers for this athlete, cheers for that athlete, cheers for Steinbrenner, cheers for the, for the, the trophy. And then they had ours. And then the chant started, who the, are you? who like this chant welcoming these politicians. So for that one moment, I realized, you know what, I'm a complete fish out of water being here. Um, but even I breathe some of the fumes of those Yankee championship years. But I'm firmly a Met guy. And nowadays I feel like I cover, my, you know, I, I, I follow my, uh, minor league baseball the way they've been playing. But with Scherzer and, and DeGrom, who knows? Anything's possible next year. Well, no, backstory to that first parade because uh, I was broadcasting the post-Yankee game show here at WABC. We had the Yankees. And I'm down at the parade site through the Canyon of Heroes. The trucks are queuing up. And here is the voice of the New York Yankees, Michael Kay and John Sterling. And they didn't have a truck because you politicians Probably. were bogarting the trucks. 
So what I did with the Guardian Angels is we basically requisitioned a truck. I forget who we took it from. I was threatening them. They were going crazy. Put Michael Kay and John Sterling on. And you're right. That day, if you were not a tried and true Yankee, they were throwing wet yeah. toilet paper at you, whatever they could get their hands at you, because they knew there were Johnny-come-lately jumping on. And also that there's corporate sponsors and all these other things. I mean, that's the thing about about these kinds of things. When you become a championship-level team, suddenly everybody's somebody. Everybody's into it. And, and you know, I, I I remember when 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 I, I went to to the World Series games in two thousand. Was it two thousand? The Yankee versus Mets with the Subway yes, Series. Yes, two thousand. Two thousand. We beat you four one. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I, I actually I barely remember. But the you know you go to these stadiums, and, and I and I went to the games in both stadiums. I was a I was a muckety muck. I was able to do that. But it's all these suits around mixed in with these true. Yankee fans, you know, the real, real fans. But uh, we'll see. I, I think I think that if I were to handicap it, I think next year the Mets will have a better record than the Yankees. Well, let's take you back in the time machine to Brooklyn since we're both Brooklyn boys. You went to Brooklyn Tech, the same school that produced, I mean, dozens and dozens uh, of young men at that time, later to be joined by young women, even uh, the son of uh, – Bill de Blasio, Dante, went to Brooklyn Tech. Our owner-operator, John Katsimatidis, who heads the alumni. Just You name it, these people went to uh, Brooklyn Tech. I went to Brooklyn Prep, a Jesuit high school. Uh, the Jesuits shined their boots on my backside. It was a school in Crown Heights and kicked me to the curb, and I never looked back. Uh, I'm a high school dropout, never pursued further education. But we're Brooklyn boys through and through. When was your baptism in politics? Because you really started early. I mean, you were in city council. I don't even think you were shaving yet. But <laughs> you must have had made your bones early in politics because you moved up. You were like a, a rocket through city council, then in Congress. You ran in a district that the mother of my two youngest sons, Melinda Katz, was competing for out of Queens. You were in Brooklyn. You You beat her by a few hundred votes. Uh, it, it, you have you had an amazing history politically, but it had to have its roots. Where, where was the motivation? Yeah, it, it, I mean, look, it's, it, it started out living in this household in Brooklyn where we were always arguing with each other, we were always mouthing off with each other, always you know having to throw elbows to kind of get to get the attention of our folks or whatever it was. But I don't remember. Look, one of the things that people need to understand about politics, and you understand this is being a person who would make a good elected official is only a small fraction of what it takes to get there. You need enormous breaks. You need a lot of breaks. You need to be at the right place in the district that is, has a vacancy. At a, at a, and I got all – I got it. You got to, if you make a list of the top ten reasons that I wound up rising to Congress, you got to get down to like six or seven before it's anything I did. You know, I mean I had to have a very good – I had a mentor in Chuck Schumer – to think about when it really began is when when I was in in uh, in college at the Harvard of Clinton County, New York, Plattsburgh State University, um, and I didn't you, know you were up in Plattsburgh. <laughs> yeah, I went up there's there. a prison there. Well, so a university and a prison, and then Canada on well, the other no, side. They, well, there's an Air Force base when I was there, but for my purposes, what was important, you couldn't shake a dead cat without any ice skating rink. I wanted to play hockey. So I went up there thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be hockey heaven. And I almost failed out of college because that's all I was always doing was playing hockey up there rather than going to class. But when it comes to when it came time to try to figure out what I wanted, I realized I was gravitating towards a lot of these political classes. I went to my advisor. He says, you should do an internship. I said, great. What's an internship? How do I do it? I had a look up at my congressman, Chuck Schumer. I didn't even know it. 
I spelled his name without a C on the letter that I wrote to him. And I said, look, I have nothing else to do. Let me come down. I'll sleep on my Aunt Lois's couch. I'll be an intern. And I've kind of like Dan Quayle, I failed upwards from there. I worked for him in Washington. Then I came back and worked in his district office on Kings Highway. And then there was a city council seat open. And I had I had done something unlike some of the elected officials get elected today, that they, they basically pop on the scene, have a lot of Twitter followers, and you get in. I had apprenticed for five or six years working for Chuck Schumer, and that was not a bad person to apprentice on. Now, explain about Chuck Schumer, because uh, when I look at the panoply of different political officials who've been around for a long time, everywhere I look, there are Chuck Schumer alumni. What is it about him that he has created this enormous bench, no level of government? I mean, I've run across, I'll call them Schumerites for the purpose of description, federal government judgeships, county government, city government, little towns, little villages. Where where did you make your bones in politics? Oh, with Chuck Schumer. What is it about this guy that he develops people who then go on to do other things politically? Well, some of it is, most of it is, first of all, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, you know, people kid him about having perfect scores in the SATs and Harvard Law and Harvard and everything. He's a brilliant guy. But the thing about Chuck is that Chuck is the rare politician that as he's moved along and as he's gotten to be a bigger and bigger deal in Washington, still keeps both of his feet firmly planted in his home district. What you very often see with politicians who become big is they kind of lose a little bit of that connection. And when you lose that connection, what else do you lose? You lose that kind of cadre of local people that are working for you and learn from you and everything else. But his real gift is that politicians are usually good at one of two things, the inside game, the guys with the thick glasses who sit with their, with their eye shade on and write the legislation, figure out how to get it passed. And the outside guys, the people like, for want of a better example, today's modern version is Andrew Ocasio-Cortez, people who are really good at the outside game, getting the attention, putting the pressure from the outside to get what they want. Chuck was both, and he did something else. He trained us to try to keep up with him. So when I became a congressman, I'm doing Sunday press conferences because he taught me to do Sunday press conferences. When I you know, got to Capitol Hill, I'm like I had learned from watching him how we, he worked to get the committee assignments that he wanted, to get the bills passed he wanted. And he's also you know, someone who, frankly, all of us, because of how he's become more and more of a prominent player, you know, we're increasingly proud to say that we're, that, we're, um, that we're Schumerites. When I started working for Chuck, I was 6'3", had blonde hair and a little nose. I've morphed into this more <laughs> Semitic version of myself, you know, just looking more like I it. remember, like Chuck Schumer. And again, I'm not friends with Chuck Schumer I am his enemy, but I recognize a good politician. I remember seeing him at the express checkout at Walbaum's, shaking every hand. And then when I was living in Forest Hills with Melinda Katz at the time, raising our two young sons, Carter and Hunter, I remember seeing you at the supermarket at the express counter line, shaking every hand. And I even remember I remarked, this guy's just like Chuck Schumer. uh, But let me ask you a question that I've been wondering about for a long time. I was told when I got elected and I represented a district that began basically 75 percent Brooklyn, 25 percent Queens. I was told when I got elected, watch out for Sliwa. Do you live in Marine Park and were you thinking about me? Because people were like – we're saying, look, if you had to go you – know, and politicians, one thing they know is they know of all the 700,000 people in the district, they know the ones they got to watch out for. Sometimes it's another politician, but sometimes it's someone who's famous or sometimes someone who's rich, someone who sometimes is both. Did you ever seriously think about running against me? Yes, I was asked. Uh, I was a Canarsie kid, uh, and it was very strong where you ended up winning your congressional election against Melinda Katz and Noah Deer at the time. 
the Rockaways, Breezy Point, Naponja, Rockaway, Broad Channel. At that time, not so much Howard Beach. I had a lot of enemies there <laughs> who, who uh, tried to put me six feet under a, in a pine box. But people were coming to me, and they were saying, oh, you could take this guy on. You could beat him. I'm telling you. You, you, you know Queens. You know Brooklyn. Uh, but you had quite a race there against Melinda Katz. That was an incredible race because it was the open seat that Chuck Schumer left behind. And you battled every step of the way you battled. But anyway, when we return, uh, we've got to take a pirouette. We've got to crawl into the belly of the beast. Because from the guy who would have been mayor of the city of Newark, everybody agrees. You would have beaten uh, Bloomberg, who wanted to uh, run for a third term. All the polls indicated that. You then crashed and burned. A few times, you resurrected, crashed and burned. Resurrected, crashed and burned. In fact, after your last crash and burn, which seemed to be, uh, that was it. That would be in perpetuity. You sat with me for two weeks, substituted for Ron Kuby, did talk radio, and the suits at WABC said, man, that guy does good talk radio. I think they were ready to offer you an opportunity to do your own show. And then everything fell apart. We're going to continue on. It's the brand new Saturday show, 2 to 4, featuring Anthony Weiner on the left, yours truly, Curtis Lee, on the right. But a lot of times we're going to surprise you as we meet in the middle and then sometimes go at it from the distant left and the distant right, right here on WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Right here, you can get in on the stream, WABCradio.com, and hear it crystal clear from Kabul in Afghanistan to Baghdad in Iraq, or you can get it on the app. Or even our brand-new TV network owned and operated by Red Apple Media, John Katsimatidis, WABCradio.tv, and obviously on your old-fashioned uh, radio that both Anthony Weiner and I grew up with. Anthony, let me take you back. It was two weeks before it seemed the whole world fell apart for you. You were sitting opposite me right now. Uh, it was the morning show that I was doing with Ron Kuby. Uh, you were uh, taking his position, and according to everybody listening in the suits, wow, this guy knows talk radio. And you were explaining how you grew up listening to sports talk radio, political talk radio. You you understood the rhythm. Uh, you were well on your way to possibly maybe even having a slot at WABC. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like a scene out of Goodfellas. Uh, the manager, owner-operator Chad, uh, who is our general manager, our capo de tutti, called me up. He said, Weiner, he's dead. He said, there's nothing that can be done. Uh, he's imploded himself. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, God, look at the New York Post front page. It, it, it's over, Curtis. It's going nowhere. And then I just thought, like so many others, that you would probably pack your bags up, go somewhere, uh, find your island of Elba, and just remain there so you'd be out of sight, out of mind. What was it like then, and what has it been like since? Well, I got to tell you, even though I've lived it, and you and I are friends, and this is like it's still, I'm feeling like this in my kishkas. It's like a difficult thing to talk about. That was not, um, that was close to my, that was my bottom. After that, I did go away. I went to rehab and um, realized Finally, after going through this cycle for years, that I had something seriously going on that I wasn't addressing. And and so 
when people say, you know, you you stopped the story just before it got really bad and I wound up spending time in prison. But the, the moment that you identified was my bottom. Um, it was at the point where I looked around and I realized that whatever explanations I was giving people about what was going on, whatever stories I was telling myself, that this isn't so bad, everyone's exaggerating it, I just have bad luck, um, that underneath it all, I was dealing with something that I just had to figure out. Uh, but it was difficult. And, and you know, they say in 12-step in programs, people have different bottoms. Some people have one close call and that's it. They, they run and get some help. My bottom, I was a particularly hard one. I lost a seat in Congress. I tried to come back and I had more problems and, and wound up uh, um, having an opportunity to be the next mayor, my, my lifelong dream, something I think I'd, I would be good at and the way I could really serve my community. That became undone. Um, and then the moment you talked, that even after that, I managed to resurrect it to the point I had a book deal in hand. I had a TV deal in hand. I was doing radio with you. I was feeling like, okay, maybe this is my next thing. Um, and people say to me, what was that? Did you have a self-destructive streak? Well, that, that to some degree might have been present. The bottom line is people said you, it, it seemed like I was crazy. I, I don't know how else to put this. I was, I was like going through some very heavy stuff. But from there, I finally did get help, though, and that um, it was. It's very difficult to to talk about today because people talk about well the harm the the things I did to myself in my career. But I had a, a wife, I had a son, um, I had a community that had put their faith in me. I had campaign supporters. I had staff that were trying to help me become mayor. I had all kinds of people who continually came back to help me more and more, even though I kept letting them down. Um, but the the moment you identified was basically my bottom. Now, at that point, you hit your bottom, but you're a renowned personality. People know you. you, you there's no way. I, I mean, I've seen you a few times in the subway since. Your met cap on. You're either reading the paper. Uh, other people know who you are. They're surprised that you would be out there. Uh, how are you able to continue to live a public life? Because you didn't, you didn't go to Fairbanks, Alaska. You didn't go on a retreat. You know, you eventually ended up getting back into the subways, back into the neighborhoods. People were saying some really horrible things here. There goes the pedophile. They had tagged you with the scarlet letter. As you had said, you did you did federal time. You went a halfway house in the Bronx. How did you maintain your composure? Because a lot of other people, having gone through that, would have just said, I'm out of here. Uh, I got to get out of here. And yet you stayed right in the epicenter of the very place that made you that you loved, but also was prepared to sack you and burn you at the stake. Yeah. I mean, where was I going to go, though? I mean, I'm a new – this is this city has made me all, all of the things I am, not just the messed up stuff. This city made me the thing that gave my family opportunities. It gave me an opportunity. I'm a middle-class kid from Brooklyn. My mom's a school teacher. You know, my dad is a, a lawyer that hung literally hung a shingle outside our house. Like, I, I, I got an opportunity because of this city – to go hold a job that is discussed in the Constitution of the United States. And my problem was not my city. My problem was other things that I had to figure out. And one of the things that I realized going through all of this is that no matter how bad things got for me, I could sit down and write a gratitude list that was way longer than the guys that I saw in prison, way longer than a lot of people that I saw on subway trains and bus stops. And also, in addition to people sometimes yelling, hey, Carlos Danger, give me a selfie, 
were a lot of people who were coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, my son-in-law did this or I had this problem or my friend is incarcerated now in that same place that you were. Do you know him? People came to kind of see me as a reflection sometimes of what they felt. You know, when you live a life in public saying, come take a look at me, here's what I have to say, come vote for me, I'm me, 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 me. We sometimes forget, and you probably experienced this on the campaign trail, people imbue a lot of their hopes and aspirations in what you're trying to do, and they just don't let go of that because you had a rough patch. Um, But ultimately, that sense of looking down at my feet, acknowledging that, you know, the past is history and the future is a mystery, but I have this moment here today. And then there's one other thing that tethered me to the earth is I had a little boy at home. I had a wife, now an ex-wife, that I had to make amends to. I had a lot of people who had stood with me that I couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to change my name to John Smith and move out to Davenport, Iowa and grow a mustache. This was this. I, I had to make amends to those people if I was going to ultimately be back in a place that I can try to be of service to others. But I, I don't know. I, I, I guess the short answer is how I survived. I had no choice. And people go through difficult things. I went through something difficult. And one of the reasons when you called and suggested maybe we do a show together, it's that I hope maybe some people who listen, who say, you know what, that guy's been through a lot of stuff. If, you know, I don't mind listening to what he has to say because he's been through stuff just like my family's been through stuff. And there are going to be people who see me on the street who say, you don't, the things you did were bad, and they are. But they're also, I hope that they see in me someone who believes in the criminal justice system. You know, I was a pretty pro-law enforcement Democrat when I was in. I helped pass the cops program to get more cops on the street. I regret it now, and I've changed my position, but I was pro-death penalty back in the day, and I was from a part of the of New York that we had a, a lot of four former civil servants. I believe in the idea of taking responsibility, standing before a judge, say, I did it, being sentenced, even though no one's – I don't think anyone's ever been sentenced for obscenity like I was, taking responsibility, go doing your time, trying to be of service when you're inside and coming out, say, I'm going to try to rebuild things. Um, I think a lot of people give me the benefit of that. Some people don't. And to those people, I hope that they continue to maybe keep an eye on me and say, all right, maybe it's it's uh, it's time for them. But you know this, Curtis, because you deal with these people all the time, both in the subways and people that you've taken by the scruff of the neck and made part of the guardian angels. Sometimes people who just find out that anyone, you know, they just need to know that someone believes in them, that they can, they can do that. And when I, I, I worked for about 14 months as a CEO of an amazing countertop company at the Brooklyn Navy Yard called Ice Stone. And when we had a chance to hire people for the factory floor, we would always go first to the Fortune Society, which takes people, gets them ready for the workforce again out of prison. And we'd always give them the, the, the first interview because I really do believe in the notion that there's no, no one can be wasted. No one is expendable. We have to do the best we can. Now, I've known a lot of people who have hit rock bottom some who decided to take their own life. They just couldn't deal with it. Next thing, you, you saw them uh, hanging uh, in their garage or their basement. They hung themselves. Or they went into their car. They put the holes from the exhaust pipe in. They took their lives. I had an uncle uh, who went into the bathtub, slit his wrists, and his children walked in and saw that and were traumatized forever. But they, they were all demons that they had to deal with. And they just didn't fail. They could face their family any longer, their colleagues, their business associates. So they took their life. At any point when you hit rock bottom, do you think maybe I just need to cash in my chips, take my life, just 
remove myself from this plane. Maybe it would be better off for everybody if I'm not here. No. Um, I, you know, this is a little bit of shrink talk, but, you know, I came to understand that part of the reason why I was having all of these problems is I was so thirsty for affirmation, so thirsty for people to say nice things to me that when I went online and saw 30 people lined up to say nice things, I wanted to talk to them all and get them to say more nice things. That kind of being out of touch with my own emotional self and whatever it is led me to do crazy things. But arguably, it's also what kept me kept me alive. The idea that I was, you know, I, I all I knew, I was kind of like the I, some of my friends, I refer to it as the WienerBot 2000. I would get up every morning and try to figure out, all right, I got this problem in front of me. Let me figure out how I solve it. But the thing that really kept me going is inside prison, the streets of New York, on a bus just here on the way, on the M15 bus coming here, when people come to me and say, you know what, I, I, you're so tough. You've been able to get through so much. You're an inspiration. You know, like you've helped me figure out that, I, all right, maybe I can do it. Those types of little things remind me of this idea that I have now come to believe that everyone can be of service in some way. And maybe it's just reaching down and picking up a piece of trash. Maybe it's volunteering a couple hours at the Guardian Angels. Maybe it's it's just being nice to your neighbor. Everyone can be of service in some way. Well, when we come back, we got to discuss de-incarceration. It's what liberals and progressives uh, have gone to the mat for. Many men and women who have been incarcerated, whether at the federal level, state level, county level, local level, have had an epiphany. Bernard Kerrick is one. He goes, oh, once I did time, it changed my whole point of view. If you would relate to us what it's like inside, because I've been locked up 76 times, but never in a prison, only in jails around the country. Uh, I haven't had your experience. And also what it's like when you go to a halfway house. People learn they are halfway houses in their neighborhoods and they want to get the pitchforks out and burn the place down. You can give us insight into these places because I can't believe in my life that Anthony Weiner growing up in Brooklyn, going to Brooklyn Tech with the Jufro at the time, I saw your senior picture, had any way uh, ever thought I might be incarcerated and eventually in a halfway house and then eventually back in the streets of New York. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. We return. We're going to be talking to the issues of the day in the next hour. But uh, he, look, there have been programs done about prisons, incarceration, doing time. Uh, also about halfway houses. MSNBC, uh, as popular as it's become, uh, the most watched portion of MSNBC is Lockdown Raw, in which you go inside of prisons all over America at the federal level, state level, uh, and they also do halfway houses because people, they've heard about the process, they've had family members involved in the process, I can't imagine you ever in your life thought you'd be in a federal lockup and then in a halfway house. That's for sure. Um, I look here are a couple of my my takeaways. You know, one is that prison is a community like any other in many ways, in that you find people there that you're like, wow, this person's pretty impressive. I how did they get to this spot? You find people like I totally get why they're in prison. You know, I can see it. Um, but a general takeaway is, is guys are sentenced for that that are just way longer than necessary to do the trick. You know, 
guys that are in there for 10 years for growing marijuana on their farm, they could have been fine getting a four or five year sentence and we all would have been better off. They would have been better off. Taxpayer would have been better off. Um, we do have this sensibility that, you know, being tough on crime in the 1980s, the 1990s meant throw away the key. And when you start to see the real human beings that are being impacted and you also start to see that it reaches a point, you know, my, my cellmate, um, 60 something year old guy, uh, drug dealer from California, he's got a 30 year bid, you know, not he, now he's, he's, he's not a criminal now. There's zero risk if he had a 20 year sentence or a 15 year sentence. Now this is a federal lockup in Massachusetts. Right. right. And by the way, I was at a very unusual one. I was in a facility that was um, that was a hospital, so it had people like like uh, Shelly Silver at the end. And by the way, at some point we have to talk about that. I, I one of the things that I thought you did was inexcusable about hounding that guy the way you did. But I'm so proud of it, sending him back to Otisville. The there were guys there that were there. it's an administrative facility, so a lot of your former friends, some of the snitches from the neighborhood, yes, who wouldn't be safe in other facilities. And then they had people like me who were kind of like fairly high profile. So for different reasons, one bunch of guys who weren't who were diabetics or sick, a bunch of guys who were snitches and couldn't go back into Gen Pop or go into a bigger facility, and guys like me who are you know Anthony Weiner's a celebrity type. I think Anthony, uh, a guy who promised he wouldn't try to kill me, Sonny Francisi of the Colombo crime family, was there for medical reasons. He is the oldest prisoner. Ever to have served time. He got out like in 102, went to Greenpoint in Brooklyn, and then ended up passing away there. I'll never forget the time I met him. He said, Curtis, a lot of guys want to kill you. Some say I've killed 50. It could be more. Yeah, I'm going to give you a pass. But I think he actually did time in that medical facility. Well, you know, it's funny. The, one of the things that you see is you see these guys, you know, someone, someone whispered to me, oh, that's the guy from that movie The Town, the florist from the town. And you're expecting these, you know, tough guys. And at this point... Their wheelchairs are being pushed around, and they're gumming their food. Like, it, it, you, but it could very, it could very well be. But you know, look, the were you in general population? Yeah, I mean, look, I was. There were guys who were beefy with me, but generally speaking, the feds didn't want a headline. Anthony Weiner, you know, got you know lost a few teeth last night in the middle of the night, you know, like that kind of thing. But the other thing that I did is I saw prison as a place to try every day to live with intention. You know, I taught classes. I taught the other guys. I had the single worst job in the entire facility of cleaning the toilets at the rec yard so that I could be there to work out every day to keep my strapping physique. You know, uh, so every single day, you know, there there was this group of guys, older African-American inmates who hung out at the law library. And these guys are brilliant. These guys are brilliant. They're like 20 years, like pouring through, like when, when the first step back came out, uh, when when President Trump, to his credit, and members of Congress passed the for the, the it was a second. I don't know what what they called it, but it was the biggest reform we've had in quite some time. These guys were deeper into the legislative process than I ever was as a congressman. So I found a way to kind of fall in with these communities to try to be of service anywhere that I could. Um, but there is nothing like the lights going out at night. There's nothing like being limited to 15 minutes to speak on the phone to your six year old son. Um, and there's nothing like the desperation that you see in a place like that of guys who didn't go for 21 months, and I wound up serving 15 months and eight days inside and then the halfway house. You see people whose their lives are effectively over. And when you get to spend some time with them and you start to think, well, what – you know, I don't believe the victims are getting any healthier or better served by this guy being here this long. I don't, 
I know that we're spending a bunch of money to keep this guy not only there but alive because he's kind of going to be sick pretty soon. And I just saw an enormous amount of waste of human human capacity. Like it's it's it's, and I think that ultimately it is a place the Republicans and Democrats have come to closer than they've ever been. Republicans somewhat for economic reasons. You know, it used to be Republicans saw this as a job creator in communities. Now their their communities don't want a prison either. Obviously, progressives, you know, who who believe that that sentencing as the first and foremost and seeing their communities getting disrupted and destroyed because men taken out of it and then returned 20 years later to that same community with no way to, to deal with them. So, I mean, it was tough. I'll say this. And I'm still for another couple of months. I'm still on probation. So this is, you know, I'm still on supervision. Uh, um, what is what is uh, your probation consist of? What do you have to do? So I got to let them know where I'm working. I got to let them know when I want to leave the Southern District of New York. I have to I have to literally get permission, even if it's to, to go to visit my brother, Jason, out out in the Hamptons. I have to get get permission to do that. Um, I, 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 you know, get visits and check in with my with my probation officer frequently. Um, and you know, they, they basically want to keep an eye on me and, and I, ultimately they want what I want, which is for me to get back, you know, and be helpful to other people in the community, to have a job, to be with my family and the like. So in that 15 months you were in the federal star lockup, they never put you in punk city protective custody uh, for your own uh, care because somebody wanted to earn their stripes by turning you into a speed bump? No, I, I look, to be honest, I did a, I did some pretty, the, my, my, my uh, being in political life served me very well. As it probably would you, if you ever, God forbid, you, like you realize, okay, these are guys I got to be buddies with. These are guys I'm not going to sit in their TV chair. This is a guy, you know, I mentioned my cellmate. They put me in the front, the very first cell in, in, in the place, which is right by the door, with the camera right over the head because they were like, okay, which is both the lousiest freaking place because it's so noisy, but they wanted they wanted me to suffer, but they also knew that there was a line that they So while cross. you were there for 15 months, none of the guys that you were locked up would try to turn you into a Maytag, shake you down, <laughs> extort you, commissary I, money. I, uh, I had my moments. I had my moments of testing and challenging and whatever. Nothing at no time did I feel like, okay, I'm not – Walking out of here, I figured there are some guys I should steer clear of. There were some guys I should get to be my buddy because they, you know, those other guys are okay. So I was about to tell the story. So I'm in this first, and my cellmate, I find out what, who would why I said who would want to be in this cell. My cellmate was the guy who ran the commissary in the unit. Uh-huh. He was the guy who got all the chips and all the tuna salad and everything else, and he kept it in his locker. So when you couldn't get to commissary, you went to him. And you paid him a couple of shekels for bearing popcorn from him rather than having to go. Or if you, if, you're, if you didn't get any money in your account for a while, he would take care of you. Nobody messed with that guy because come Super Bowl Sunday, you needed that guy to be able to construct your whatever, your, your, your pizza falafel you were going to make, whatever it was. So they gave him as my cellmate knowing that no one was going to mess with him because he's a popular guy and me being close by. So mm-hmm. I wound up after about – six months or so, being his assistant in this commissary. So little things like that where people, maybe it's the prison system, maybe it was God, maybe it was just me being clever, like developing this relationship. Um, but I never felt un- unsafe. I'm a lucky one, though. I'm a lucky one. I'm, I don't want people to be listening to say, oh, it's not so bad, it's club fed, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, ho- it's horrible. All right, but now you go from the federal lockup to a halfway house, which a lot of guys and gals uh, do before they're allowed 
uh, to go home on their own or wherever they're going. I mean, half the guys and gals end up in shelters. I mean, I've been in and out of the shelters. Half the people in shelters uh, have been incarcerated and let out. And either their family doesn't want them at home uh, or they did a little bit of time in a halfway house and they cut loose and they got nowhere to go. So they end up in a shelter. So you're you're in a halfway house in the Bronx, right? Yeah, exactly. So all so here's and by the way, this is the part that isn't really discussed that much. That's right, because you if you've done a long bid, you did 10 years in prison. You don't have the chops. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have you know, you have a suit of clothes to do an interview. You don't have a place to go. It's just sending them home is not the thing to do. That's the theory. In practice, it's a privately run facility contracted by the Bureau of Prisons. Um, That's not great. Uh, And in many ways, doesn't have the structure that the prison system has and doesn't have any of the good stuff either. So their job there is different. Their job is to make sure you're going and looking for work, making sure that you're you know, you're checking back in at night, basically you're home where you're back where you're supposed to be. But um, the fact that it's a privately run institution that contracts out means they're trying to save every buck that they can, meaning the people who might line up to work there aren't necessarily driven by a mission. They're more driven by just getting a job. Um, and it's not ideal. It, it's not ideal. Uh, I, I think that, that, um, it, that of all the things I feel like I would like to speak more freely about after my probation is over, that's one that, that when we when in a couple of weeks when my probation is over, I think you and I should revisit it. Oh, absolutely. Because there's, there's a lot of elements of it that are really disgraceful and a lot of elements of it that don't do – like there's no reason I should have been there for three months. I mean I could have gone home to my, my mom in, in Park Slope. Uh, you know, Even Huma would have probably let me sleep on the couch in a pinch. Um, but for a lot of the guys that are there that really do need some kind of training, they really do – you know, you you got to realize there are guys who would watch the TV commercials for cell phones and they would turn to me and say, what the heck are they talking about? Because they've been in so long that they don't know from cell phones, let along, you know, the, the Pixel 6. So they would watch these commercials and literally ask me, what does that do? How does it work? Where do you plug it in? And so these same men are coming back to the system, going to a halfway house, which is really, in my view, um, not not giving them the tools they need to 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 to, to, to reintegrate into society. You, you're in the halfway house. Uh, people there know you, right? Yes. And so, what are they saying to you? Because you, you're now in solidarity. Everybody's there for different reasons. But yeah, but but let me just put a put a pin in that for one moment. Unlike in the Bureau of Prisons, when people are segregated, you know, like the snitches are kept in one place because we know they'll be safe there, and the politicians are over here, and and the sick people are down there. Every single human being, I believe, that goes to – that is in supervision, that is in a halfway house in the Eastern District goes to one in Brooklyn. The Southern District goes to the one up on, uh, in the Bronx. Everyone was in there. So it was – and some guys had been there for six weeks, some guys six hours, some guys six days. Um, and you were really kind of left to your own devices. You were really that. It was much more of a cauldron of all kinds of different things with all kinds of different challenges. Not to mention I, I show up there on February 14, 2019 – they didn't have any blankets, and so I'm like, you know, I didn't have any. It was, it, it, it was, it's a very challenging environment to be in. You, you think you're at the end when you get to the halfway house. For many guys, your challenges are just beginning. Now, curfews. What time? What time do you have to be in the halfway house? What time uh, do you have to leave? So your entire schedule is you got to have it be scheduled every bit of the way. You can't leave unless you're going to a handful of different places. 
going to uh, you're going to, to to synagogue or church to pray. You're going to a job interview. You're going to do your laundry once a week, something like that. So every moment theoretically is scripted. And then at the end of the night, I believe it's nine o'clock. You have to be completely back where you're supposed to be. You can get furloughs to go visit someplace longer if you can. But the, the theory is you're still in a structured, supervised environment, but you're doing more productive things. But it doesn't always work out that way. Well, we're going to open up our phone lines. Anthony Weiner here, 2 to 4 Saturday, every Saturday here after, as he gives you a perspective uh, from his side of the political aisle. Obviously, you know my side of the political aisle. I've been doing talk radio for 31 years, mostly here at WABC, where the acronym at times has stood for Always Broadcasting. Curtis, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And then we're going to go through a panoply of different subjects from Kushner getting nominated uh, for a Nobel Peace Prize for the Abraham Project, uh, Hillary Clinton speaking at the New York State Democratic Convention coming up at the end of the month. Is this uh, a a signal that she wants the Democratic nomination to be president? Uh, Biden, Harris, all the things maybe you haven't had a chance to uh, comment on publicly, the Freedom Convoy, the congressional lines, the redistricting, you name it, everything that's happening politically. Anthony Weiner here on the left. Yours truly, Curtis Lee, we're here on the right. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. You can catch it on the app. You can catch it on stream, uh, wabcradio.com. And it's on the Katsimatidis TV network now, wabcradio.tv. Let's go right to the phones, uh, Anthony. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. First up in the queue, Stewie in Queens. Your turn to be heard here on WABC, Stewie. My name's Billy. Billy. I'm sorry, Billy. Hey, I just, uh, yeah, I just want to say, Anthony, I think you have a lot of guts and, and a lot of courage to come on the radio today and, and share honestly and bear your soul like this. And, and I want to wish you the best of luck in the future. I appreciate it, Billy. It's kind of you. And um, I just want to ask you real quick. I mean, I guess you would have been the mayor if this whole thing didn't happen. And I, I mean, I guess what would you have done differently than de Blasio? Like, what do you think of what he did with the city, like his performance as mayor? I was just curious. Well, I mean, look, I wouldn't have run against him if I thought I wouldn't have been a better mayor. You know, my my problem with de Blasio, I think he's a nice enough fellow, but New York City isn't a city that you can run from kind of an ideological place. You know, people want stuff. They want to get stuff done. There's no, you know, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Staten Island, we all want safe streets. The Upper West Side of Manhattan, Boris Hill, Staten Island, all the different parts of the community want to have reasonable schools. And the other thing is I kind of got the feeling sometimes that we were kind of annoying de Blasio by getting up in the morning to be the mayor. Like, you know, I want to see a level of energy and enthusiasm and the idea that, look, I'm your mayor. It's not always going to be – I'm not always going to have every answer for every question. You're not always going to agree with what I do, but I'm out here leading the charge, advocating for the city. And I, I never got the feeling that that part of the job was something that he liked very much. I appreciate that, uh, Billy, who I've seen on his bicycle, his big chief uh, Schwinn bicycle around the city. Let's go to Amy calling all the way from Connecticut. Your turn to be heard here with Anthony Weiner, yours truly, Curtis Sliwa at WABC, Amy. Amy, welcome back, Anthony. Just wondering why you protect Schumer. 
Schumer left us as a Jewish people, left us. His name is Schumer. He all the time used to say, my name is Schumer. I'm the Schumer. He's the Schumer, exactly. <laughs> why you, why you protect him when he left us, when he gets stuck with Omar and AOC? Why? Well, look, he, uh, first of all, I, I thank you for the, for the, the kind welcome back. I, I, he never left us. Like when you go from representing Yiddishkeit of Borough Park and Flatbush to representing the entire state, he, all he's done is expanded. But I got to tell you, there's there's no better friend of Eretz Yisrael, Chal Yisrael, than 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 Chuck Schumer. Now I would disagree with you in that Iran situation. He could have lobbied fellow Democrats uh, as a minority leader. Uh, to vote for the sanctions, to vote for putting the pressure on the Ayatollahs, he chose not to. He chose not to stand up to Barack Obama. Well, wait a minute. I mean, he voted the right way. Yeah, but he didn't lobby his fellow Democrats. Uh, you know, there are some issues that are so big and so public. You know, if you're trying to get well, a paragraph change or a line change in a bill, all right, lobbying helps colleague to colleague. You're not going to tell you know, a, a, a senator from Nebraska, hey, you know, come do me a favor on this big, important vote. He he voted the right way. Now, speaking of Israel, uh, Kushner, the son-in-law of Donald Trump, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. We'll get into that. So much more. First program, Anthony Weiner, Curtis Lee, exclusive to WABC every Saturday from 2 to 4. You don't want to miss it. Or catch it on the podcast if you can't listen in live at WABCradio.com. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Every time you come around, you know I can't say no. Every time the sun goes down, I let you take control. Anthony Weiner rejoins us for this final hour. Set your dial every Saturday from 2 to 4 as you are going to experience radio in a way you probably haven't uh, ever before because you have two guys in the studio, Brooklyn boys, uh, who have had their ups and downs, both who have had the opportunity to run for mayor of the city of New York and approach things usually from a different perspective for different reasons, but also... Uh, two guys who have had some bad habits in their life that have come back to bite them right in the tuchus. And that's why this Eddie Sheeran uh, song is uh, my favorite and my wife's favorite, Nancy, who is the cat lady, who uh, rescues cats a mile a minute uh, and has endeared herself to the uh, the public there for the uh, great work that she does. Never listened to talk radio before because she's, uh, I don't know how old she is. She's a hipster or millennial. But for a lot of people, they want talk radio, uh, Anthony, that gives all different points of view. And that people are open-minded. It's what our owner-operator, John Katsimatidis, wants, and it's why he reached out to you twice. A year ago, you said, you're not ready. And then this time, when you said, let's do it. So uh, thank you to him. He's the Al Davis, uh, any of you knowing uh, football, 
Uh, Al Davis, Brooklyn boy, came out of Erasmus High School, uh, owner-operator of the Oakland uh, Raiders, who gave everyone a second chance. That was his motto. Everybody's entitled to a second chance, and he's done it here. So any of you folks wondering, whoa, why? Hey, O'Reilly got a second chance here by John Katsimatidis, WABC. Sid Rosenberg, second chance here. Dominic Carter, second chance here. And now Anthony Weiner, second chance here. Uh, and we're going to go into a wide uh, panoply of subjects, but lots of calls here. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's get right into the calls. Liz in Manhattan, your turn to be heard here at WABC, Liz. Welcome to ABC, Anthony. I think it's great you're there. Um, a long time ago, my um, cousin decided it would be a good idea to make some extra cash. So she went into a drug deal and, of course, told me everything. I said, I don't want to know everything. Luckily, my father was a very powerful attorney, and he called Robert Morgenthau and said, my daughter stays out of the picture. She went to the Metropolitan Corrections Center for a year. He got her out after a year. But uh, she ran the jail because she was uh, a graduate of an Ivy League college. And so the warden, she was the warden's assistant. And every day from eight till like five, she reorganized all his files and reorganized how the jail was run. (laughs) So I thought you all might like that story. She's now an editor of books and is uh, leading her life. Wasn't that the Shawshank Redemption? Wasn't that exactly what uh, Robbins did in the Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I in in the, in the institution I was at, um, there were people that made use of their skills to try to to get ahead a little bit. Um, like I said to Curtis, and by the way, thank you for the welcome back. Well, like I said to Curtis, you know, people figure out ways to survive, and usually that means working together in some way, even in prison. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's go to Wendy on the Upper West Side. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Wendy. Yeah, hi there. Um, welcome, Anthony. Great to see you on the radio. Thank you. I'm reaching out to you two because I think you guys might be able to share some insights regarding this situation with Eric Adams hiring his brother. So he hires his brother, who has been in Virginia for the past 15 years, managing a parking lot in a small town at a small Virginia university. And then he hires his brother for $240,000 a year to be deputy commissioner of the NYPD. And then people get wind of that, and there's a lot of backlash. But needless to say, the brother is still employed, but now he's only making a dollar. So... My questions are, how is he going to survive in New York City making $1, and how is he going to get paid? That seems kind of shady. And then also, how do we end this whole nepotism thing? Because we had de Blasio and his wife, who spent like a billion dollars unaccountable. So how do we get a handle on this, and what are your insights? Well, thank you. I mean, look, I think we should take a step back and try to figure out what it is that we're concerned about. Nepotism laws exist because we don't want politicians in, in enriching their families as part of their job. But if we want the mayor to surround himself with the people that he's most comfortable with to help him run the city in the best way that he can, which benefits us all, I don't see anything inherently wrong with having a cousin or a brother or a, even a wife who come in and serve, in this case, he's volunteering. Now, how he's doing that, how he's supporting himself, 
I am less concerned about that than as a citizen, are we getting the people that are going to help Eric Adams be the best and most successful mayor possible? But think of it, Anthony. Here it is. He reaches for his brother, Bernard, uh, who was a cop for 20 years, mostly community affairs, as the woman said, down in Virginia for all that time. And then when the pressure is put on, he says, oh, you know, white supremacists out there. Oh, you know, my brother will watch my back. I'm like, you know, other than going to Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, having a white sheet sale and standing there for days uh, trying to find a white supremacist, that's the most ridiculous answer I've ever heard. The reality is uh, it's very uh, Clinton-esque. Deflect, steer, protect. That's why his brother is there. His, his brother is there to protect him personally, not professionally. The NYPD intel unit is the best in the world. They could protect him. He doesn't want people to know what he's doing on his own so time. So you don't like the optics of the way he explained it, but you're fine with him having the guy No, there. because I know he's going to get a no-show job. He's going to be made a security advisor at a company that is giving massive contributions to Team Adams. And all he'll have to do is fill out some paperwork, and he'll get paid. You know what, I understand, but putting aside your fantasy about what might happen, which is not anywhere in the record that is happening, you're concerned that the way he answered about why – I think what it comes down to is my explanation is this is someone he's comfortable with that, and him being comfortable and having someone around that he can rely upon, he can confide in, whatever the reason – I, you know, was Bobby Kennedy the best possible attorney general in the entire country at the time that JFK? No, but it clearly having his brother around to be someone that he can rely upon, someone he can talk to, someone he can share with, whatever it is, might have made him a better president. Our question should be, is having Bernard Adams in this capacity, is it lawful? Yes. And will it make Eric Adams a better mayor? That's what we want. I mean, putting aside whatever bias we might have, whoever people voted for you, he's the mayor. We want it to be a good one. No, no, I understand. But you know the reason, the pragmatic, common sense reason is he doesn't want people to know about his personal life. He's an enigma. Well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. He hired – I mean, I think that even they would admit that they should have run the traps with the Conflict of Interest Board before they agreed on the salary or the position. They've now done that. If the concern is him having his brother anywhere in city government, I can see a scenario where I would say to my brother, Jason, you know, look, do me a favor. Can you come help me out with this? I need someone who I'm comfortable. Eric Adams has a lot of new friends right now. If it makes him a better mayor to have his brother around and we know about it, there's some transparency around it. The press found out about it. They reported about it. They corrected something. They did their mayor couple, and now they're moving on. I don't have a problem with him working but, at City Hall. you didn't believe that white supremacist nonsense. I, I believe that in the bottom line of what Mayor Adams was saying is I would feel more comfortable with my brother around, and it would make me do my job better. Because your brother, like uh, Fredo, like Chris Cuomo does for his brother Andrew, will lie – will steal, will cheat, will do what brothers do for one another. Well, that's that's, that's one story to tell. The other story to tell is, listen, this is someone that he can rely upon, someone who's not a Johnny-come-lately, someone who's not getting – now he's not getting paid paid to be there. And if it means that Eric Adams gets up in the morning feeling a little – it makes it easier for him to do his job, it's a win for all of us. Our number is one 800 Let's go to Al and Rhinebeck. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Al. Yeah, um, to quote a, a great New Yorker, uh, welcome to the uh, Anthony Weiner, the wiener. And um, uh, Curtis, I'm, I think you're, you've are you got to take the gloves off. But um, Carlos, um, as, a, as a lifelong Democrat, uh, I am disgusted by the way the party allowed this cognitive mess that we have as a president 
knowingly that he was diminished to run the country and to destroy the Democratic Party in the making. You're a lifelong Democrat, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Roosevelt. Well, Roosevelt. Are you? I. I. Well, you. You're not. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you. I, look, I. I don't believe that there's. I. I watch sometimes with half an eye open to this drumbeat about cognitive this and cognitive that. I think President Biden is doing a good job under difficult circumstances. We created more jobs in the last month than any mayor than any mayor than any president in history. The stock market. If you're invested, if you have retirement accounts, you're probably loving him as a president because the stock market. With the, hasn't gone up every day, but is doing much better than the day that he walked in. Um, I believe that he's doing a good job, a good, competent job. Now, I do believe this is a tough time to be president. It's a tough time to be mayor. It's a tough time to be in office anywhere right now. Nobody likes the way things are going in the country, largely because of what's going on with COVID. But um, he's going to get reelected, and I'm going to vote for him. But, uh, Anthony, this inflation thing, that he doesn't want to recognize, uh, he doesn't want to come to grips with it it's just growing in stature you know you you're you you are a pragmatic politician you understand it's bread and butter issues i'm paying more for gas i'm paying more for milk i'm paying more for eggs bread uh i'm already living uh many americans on a paycheck to paycheck basis it's not like i have a lot of money to lead on especially having survived through the pandemic and the lockdown people really depleted whatever money they were able to squirrel away why do you think he almost seems to be in the in the in the dark about inflation. What do you mean in the dark about inflation? He the responses that people have been jumping on him for is like when when journalists or people like, hey, there, Mr. President, turn down inflation. By the way, do you know the inflation rate is is up across the world? Thirty eight major industrial countries. It's not like the president of the United States is turning inflation on and off. And by the way, all these people complain about inflation because there's too much money washing in the system. I got an idea. Why don't we take back the Trump tax cuts? Right. That's just dumped a ton of money to the to the, the, the richest one percent of Americans. If you're really so concerned about how much money is washing through the system, we have you know, I, I, I came from from running a company at the Navy Yard. We manufacture countertops. We relying upon we get recycled glass. We mix them with cement. It's a remarkable product. People should look it up on iStoneUSA.com. The m- amount of disruption that has led to higher costs, trucks not being available. Containers from China not being available, uh, uh, um, uh, workers not being able to go into buildings except for short windows of time, the amount of people that were out sick with COVID, the amount of additional things we had to do at the factory to make it safe for people. I mean, to, it is perfectly reasonable to say inflation is a problem and we should figure it out. A lot of it's going to have to be monetary policy. A lot of it's not going to be fiscal policy. It's going to be monetary policy. But all of those things being said, this idea, oh, President Biden doesn't get it, or even worse, that some of your listeners might think he's somehow responsible for this. Remember, even his biggest legislative initiative was not as big as as the as the bailout at the end of the Trump years. So even if you believe there's too much spending, it's certainly not Biden's spending. He's trying well, to do more. I admit I that. think I think people see Republicans as cutting through red tape. Perfect example. I was in DeSantis land the last few days. So Governor DeSantis said, OK. Uh, cargo containers can't get into the port of Los Angeles, largest in the nation, or port of Oakland, San Francisco, of Portland, Seattle, up and down the West Coast. Just go through the Panama Canal, come here to Florida, boom, unloading people left, right, every which way. It, they see Republicans cutting through red tape. They saw Buttigieg, uh, who was home uh, basically for 
uh, domestic purposes to help raise his kid in the initial stages of his child's birth. And they're saying, well, who's at the helm here? The Department of Transportation. We have a crisis. And it, it didn't seem like anyone in the White House had a grip on it. Listen, you know, the problems that we had at the, at the, the, the port in Huntington, California, were not the creation of government. That was the, that was the marketplace seizing up because of the COVID crisis. I mean, it is, look, you can blame the guy who happens to be in charge, and that's part of the job is you get blamed. But this was an international uh, pandemic that jammed up so many elements of our economy. And the whole idea of like, oh, yeah, just take a container from California and loop it around the country through the Panama Canal to the East Coast, that's a solution. That, look, I can tell you the marketplace would tell you it's not a solution. The marketplace would tell you this isn't bureaucracy. This is we had a problem. We had so many people buying things from China, container after container from coming from China. Suddenly all the containers are at the U.S. side. I know this because we had a problem. We were trying to get, get, get materials and supply in. Containers are sitting. If you were in the container business about eight months ago, you're, you're, you're living high in the hog today. It's not always – you know. we want to find villains and people to blame, particularly when you're a partisan Republican or partisan Democrat. You want to say the other guy screwed this up. No, sometimes stuff just happens. And in this case, I am glad that President Biden's in there, not the incompetency well, just, we have for the I'll last just four add years. Uh, an addendum. Our numbers one eight hundred eight four eight wabc My father, Chester Merchant, seaman for 55 years, explained at other troubled times in our nation's history. Uh, there were massive labor issues in Oakland, the uh, uh, International Longshoremen Union president there was a communist, a real communist, a proud communist, followed Gus Hall, was the head of the American uh, Communist Party, who was based in Yonkers, had a little dacha there and grew tomatoes in the front. And he tied up shipping on the West Coast, and he said, we were oftentimes rerouted through the uh, Panama Canal, uh, up and down Savannah, another big port, obviously a port down in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and then up to Port of Baltimore, Philadelphia. So that has been used as a remedy before. Anyway, we're going to go to the phones. There are a number of issues. We still, we have still, when we come back, we got to deal first with the fact that Kushner, the son-in-law of the president of the United States, has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his Abraham Project, which I never thought could work. I gave him props, something I didn't normally do with the Trump administration. It'll be interesting because you've been uh, thought of as a hardcore Zionist, you know, support of Israel. What your perception is on that, and naturally, everybody out there, remember, this is a regular feature. You can get it right now on WABCradio.tv. That's the Red Apple Media TV Network. You can get it on the stream. You can get it on the app all over the world. And most importantly, you can get it on your terrestrial radio, the radios that Anthony and I grew up listening to when we were kids in Brooklyn. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Anthony, you had mentioned you grew up in a household where your dad hung a shingle as a lawyer in Park Slope and your mother was a teacher. So I figured because of that, let's go to Dave in Rockland County. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dave. Hey, uh, gentlemen. Um, uh, Anthony, uh, I just have two quick questions for you. Your thoughts on charter schools, are you for or against? Um, Every time I look at stats, it seems like they're... Um, very advantageous to minority children in neighborhoods. That's number one. Number two, um, I can't remember the second question. <laughs> I'll think of it. I, I think I think the second question was, how am I so darn handsome? How does that work out? No, I'm, 
Well, let me let while, while you're thinking about it, Dave, while you think your second question, you know, my view on charter schools is we should try everything. Like, you know, uh, for the most part, when you're the mayor, you're in charge of government. It's the 1.1 million kids in the thousand school buildings. That's your primary concern. Um, but if someone comes along and says, listen, I have an idea that I want to try. My general view is when the schools are so challenged the way they are is let's try everything. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's the answer. I think it's it's one of the things in the kind of cocktail, the pod tie of, of solutions that we use. But I think it's also kind of a distraction some on the left sometimes buy into. Like they get so freaked out about a couple of charter schools, you know, educating a couple hundred kids. They kind of let that dominate the debate. My view is let's try everything and let's compare everything side by side. But when you do that, make sure you're comparing them apples to apples. Have you had that conversation with your mother, long-term uh, public school teacher, proud member of the UFT, um, Union of Federation of Teachers? Did you ever have that, like, Well, discussion? no. I mean, for my mom's mom's retired from uh, – she, she taught at Midwood and before that IS-88. We, um, she taught at Midwood? Yeah. She may have taught Sid Rosenberg. Sid Rosenberg went to Midwood. I got to tell you, you, you I rarely find – just the other day, someone came up to me and said, you know, I had your mom for math. And you kind of gird yourself, like, am I going to get punched in the chops here or is he going to say, you know, she was – She's a, she was a great teacher. The consensus is she was a great teacher. Well, that, that was his best subject. He went on to Baruch. I would, Sid Rosenberg. I, well, I've, we we got to find out. He and I have 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 never talked about it, um, but he probably did. If he was at Midwood, he probably had my mom, and he's of the age that, 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 that he would have. But, no, we haven't had that conversation. But, you know, we remember something. You can set up charter schools that are still UFT, and, and they have, that are still UFT members. So long as it's apples to apples, the challenges with charter schools is – they are, even in their best iterations, self-selecting. You get the most motivated parents. You get the most, and they have the ability to do something public schools can't do, which is kick out the bad apples. Well, you know, so, I, I always said because uh, I went to public schools and private schools. I actually went to public schools in the '60s when they were better than parochial schools because you had advanced classes, what we call gifted and talented. Now, SP. Uh, you could really excel, whereas if you're a Catholic uh, school class, everyone is mixed together. And I'll never forget, it was a debate at that time. It was Albert Schenker, uh, who was in the latter years as president of the UFT, and it was the cardinal of the archdiocese. And Schenker said, you know, your problem is that when you have a troubled youth in your school system, you expel them. You kick them out, and then they become uh, the problem of the public school. So the cardinal said at that time, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, in order to uh, get uh, tuition tax credit vouchers at that time, that was the battle. We'll keep we'll keep those kids, and it never went any further. But charter schools can get rid of their kids. Uh, parochial schools can get rid of their kids who, uh, let's say, uh, discipline problems. And then it becomes the privy of the public schools because a kid has to get right, a guaranteed right. education. I'll tell you, so apropos of that, but the inverse is also true. One of my proudest things I did as a congressman is – I led the charge when the Archdiocese of Brooklyn and Queens were trying to close parish schools because as someone who never set foot, obviously, in a parish school, Anthony Weiner was not going to St. Saviors. The, I knew those parish schools were the anchor of the community, even if you weren't going in. Like, you need a little bit of everything. New York City, and this is true of the economy, but it's true of education too. New York City has to be – it can't be white rice. It has to be pad thai. It has to be a little bit of everything. And so when people fight over charter schools, I think they're missing the point. I say try them. And but hold them accountable, just like we hold the public schools. I think that was Cardinal O'Connor, if memory serves me correctly. Anyway, let's go to the phones. Rick in Manhattan, your turn to be heard here at WABC. Rick. Good afternoon, Curtis. Good afternoon, uh, Mr. Weiner. 
Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Some people get caught. But I will say the length of time you were incarcerated was more than excessive. It was egregious for what you allegedly were supposed to have done. I'll get to my points now. Number one, to come on this program and defend a man like Chuck Schumer, who on every occasion has refused to condemn despicable and vile anti-Semites in the United States Congress is really quite disappointing. Number two, we've had four to six presidents in the history of this republic. This is the first time in our history we have a commander-in-chief who has publicly declared and made good on the threat that he will not defend our borders. The fact that you would come on this program and say that the man in the Oval Office is doing a good job running this country displays a remarkable capacity for mendacity on your part, Mr. Wiener, and very disappointing. Yeah, I, I believe it. I, I believe the stuff that I believe, and I believe that Chuck Schumer is a, a, a strong supporter of Israel and a, a, a leader of our community and arguably the most important um, Jewish American in the planet. And I also, well, I'm in the Congress, and he's a mentor of mine and someone I'm proud to call my United States senator. As far as Biden's view, and look, we could do a whole show, and maybe we will in the future, about immigration. I bet you, you and I, and Joe Biden, if we sat down in a room and tried to come up with a solution to our immigration problems, we'd probably be able to do it. The challenge is that we have a situation in Congress that there are people that will not consider any legislation to try to solve the problem that we have of so many undocumented people here. Many of them perfectly people that we that 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 you, you and I, Rick, would probably agree should I be able to stay here, pay a fine, get at the end of the line. Um, you know, don't cut ahead of anyone. If you show you got a job, you're going to learn the American the, the American way of life, learning the English language. You're welcome here. There are others that are criminals that we want to get get rid of, put in prison, or export them. But the problem is that the Congress is now held hostage to people who won't have any conversation about immigration at all, both on the left and on the right. All right. But the most recent uh, videos we've seen and they're documented is that overnight they are flying in illegal aliens into small airports, Westchester County Airport, Republic Airport out in Long Island. Uh, Nobody is being told about this. They come across the border. Uh, they're dropped off into these areas. Then they're bussed into different locations. Local uh, elected officials, whether they're Democrat or Republican, are not being told about it. Rob Astorino, to his credit, the former Westchester County executive, now running for the Republican nomination for governor, has documented it. I, I, I don't think you're for that because there's no transparency here. Well, I, I tell you what I am for. I mean, look, here's a fact. The fact is that people line up at our borders for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, the same people that are opposing um, uh, opposing Im- immigration are also people that we've tried to persuade. We should try to help these countries to keep these people where they are. But if you're saying, do we need to find a way beyond locking up kids in cages to try to figure out a way to process them in a reasonable way that they're not standing literally at, at, at our border in, in one border crossing in Texas? Yeah, we do have to figure that out. Um, and by the way, Curtis, you know, there's not an easy answer to this. When you have all these people, some of them in that group that are trying to come into this country probably do have a right to lawfully enter the country and are trying to do it the right way. And so once you have those people lined up in camps, lined up at the border, lined up where they are, we have some obligation to try to process them in a reasonable way. Does that mean that sometimes they don't all stay in Texas? They sometimes wind up somewhere else? Yes, 
But this is an undesirable problem, but some, but, but at least this is a better way to do it than locking up in cages at the border. Now, this leads us uh, to uh, the dynamic duo, as some Democrats refer to them as Biden uh, and the tag team uh, Vice President Harris. Uh, she was given the responsibility to deal with the growing border problems, and she's been missing in action on the subject. I mean, uh, how would you grade her performance since Vi- uh, President Biden clearly said, you're in charge of the border? And we haven't even seen you do anything. I got to tell you, first, you know, I, I assume that Vice President Harris is ambitious to be president. That's what I assume. And the fact that rather than taking on some fluffy assignment, she says, I want to do immigration, tells me that she deserves our praise. Now, it's an, a, a difficult problem with untractable tentacles that really you're, you're unlikely to get a win, but someone has to do this difficult job. That's the kind of vice president, if I'm president, I want. Someone who doesn't say, I don't want, I want to do ribbon cuttings and I want to do cookbooks. I want to go out and I really want to deal with tough problems. I give her a lot of credit for doing that. And by the way, we should as citizens too. We shouldn't just reward, uh, reward the politicians who stand up and do the press conferences. Someone like her who says, listen, I want to take on this, the t- arguably the toughest, most intractable problem in all of government, she gets credit for that. Now, I will admit that in the, in the two years they've been in office, a year and a half, we have not solved the immigration problem, and arguably it's, it's getting worse every day. Well, waiting in the wings, a person you know as well as anybody in the world, Hillary uh, Rodham Clinton, will be uh, speaking before the New York State uh, Democratic Convention coming up. They will be nominating their statewide uh, candidates. Obviously, I'll be going to the Republican uh, uh, statewide convention, which is going to take place in Nassau County. Likewise, they do the same. She'll be the keynote speaker. And many have said this is the first step on her way back. She knows Joe Biden is doing very poorly in the polls and that uh, if it ever came about that Hillary could once again become the Democratic Party nominee and Trump uh, continues uh, to push uh, aside any challenges, uh, people would welcome that return bout between Hillary and Trump. I guess they would. Uh, but I got to tell you, this is the cycle that we always go in, right? As soon as one election is over, within six months, we're like, all right, what's the next battle that there's going to be? President Biden is going to be the nominee for a second term. He's going to win a second term. Thereafter, I'm trying to think how old Hillary would be after a second Biden term. Um, I think Hillary Hillary should have been elected president. She would have been a great president, but she's not going to be and she's not going to run in 2024. But one thing that she's shown since she left office is she's willing to do anything necessary, anything she can to be to be helpful. But I don't mind the gossip game there. You are going to hear you're right. I mean, Biden's poll numbers are not great, except when head to head against Trump. Then he does just fine. <laughs> but his his poll numbers are not good. You're going to hear this kind of speculation. That, and and I, every indication is Democrats are we're going to get our clock cleaned in the midterms. We usually do. Um, the in party usually gets a really bad uh, thumping, even though I would point out that Democrats actually gain seats in the midterm election I was first elected in. Um, but I think this is going to be a time. This will be a real, a real reckoning. This, this is amazing because you're sitting on one side. You told us early on that uh, Chuck Schumer, then in Congress, helped mentor you to eventually you winning his congressional seat against, uh, at that time, the mother of my two youngest sons, Melinda Katz, who's now the Queen's DA. But I also lead the pack, StopSchumer.com. So we're sitting right opposite one another. One of the reasons I was in Florida was to raise money for the PAC to stop Schumer.com. And here it is. You told us all about Chuck Schumer. So 
You couldn't write this up if you even sat down. You had your Vicodin or Percocet, which uh, some say help you in writing, and and whip this one up. Our number is 1-800-848-WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Every Saturday is 2 to 4. It's appointment radio for you here at WABC. If you can't catch it uh, live and in person, you catch it. In a podcast form, you go to WABCRadio.com or catch it on the app to stream. And John Katsimatidis' newest venture, his TV network, uh, WABCRadio.tv. We're on right now. Well, let's go back to the phones. Anthony Weiner, it's Dara calling from Saratoga, New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dara. Mr. Weiner, I'm listening today because I believe and support those that do their time, work the steps, make genuine amends, and take full advantage of a precious second chance. So don't screw it up. (laughs) So with that, I'd like to hear you and Curtis spar over bail reform. All right. Your perception of bail reform as it exists right now in New York State. I generally believe that for want of money for bail, people shouldn't be held at Rikers Island. I just think that it doesn't serve anyone's interest. And that's just because I have the ability to pay a $1,000 bail for the exact same crime that someone doesn't have the ability. So I have no problem with fixing that system. Um, so far, it doesn't seem, you know, there's been a lot of hysteria around some of the crimes that have been committed. That per- Sometimes I see someone who's out on bail <laughs> and they say, oh, bail reform didn't work. No, that person was out on bail. That's not an example of someone who wasn't, didn't, wasn't held on any bail at all. Um, I think that there, you know, so far the data that I've seen um, doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's a contributing factor or a major contributing factor to the spike in crime that we've that we've seen. I think that too many people were being held in Rikers Island who should have been out on who should have been out in the community waiting for their trials, um, including people that ultimately wound up perishing in, in, in Rikers. That that the the, the reform was was um, was uh, was was well intentioned. I will say that I do think that you want to give judges the opportunity to say, I am concerned that this person, what he's accused of and what little evidence I've seen so far, shows me that there is a risk here. But the problem with all of this is at the bail stage, everyone is innocent. And if you start saying we're going to start sanctioning people before they have committed any crime – I think that's a very slippery and dangerous slope. But, Anthony, we know, like everything, New York thinks they're the best, not like the rest. Pretentious uh, as he was, Cuomo, uh, the state uh, leaders in the legislature, cousins with a supermajority in the state Senate now, hasty supermajority of Democrats in the Assembly. Their attitude is we're going to craft our own no-bail law. New Jersey had a no-bail law two years before us. Democratic control, I mean, at that time. And yet they passed a no-bail law that has worked because the only thing different is they gave the judge the uh, the choice of not only looking to see if the uh, suspect was a flight risk, that's the primary thing, or a threat to themselves, many of them with emotionally disturbed problems, so they would go to a uh, psychiatric uh, clinic uh, that was also a, a prison temporarily, or a danger to society. It's working well. 
New York is the only state out of the 49 states that does not allow the judge to make that discretion. And I've been telling people I know why Hasty is dug in, why uh, Cousins is dug in at the state level. Generis, so who's really the power behind this, we're not changing. Uh, the mayor is going up there to lobby them next week. There are Republican judges upstate who are citizens, many of them. They're not attorneys. You don't have to be an attorney to be a judge, like a Supreme Court justice. You don't have to be an attorney. Attorney General of New York, people always assume you had to be a lawyer. You don't have to be. So the Democrats are saying, we don't want these white Republican judges upstate New York making decisions that we think will be unfair towards black and Hispanic yeah, but let me, uh, but let, me let me ask you this question. What if you saw data that showed that people, two people accused of the exact same crime, one white, one Hispanic, one black, whatever it is. If you saw that disproportionately what was going on was the black and Hispanic guy was being held and uh, um, was being held and the white guy was not, you would say that's a problem. Let's address that. Right. Same exact crime. But then you talk about Rikers Island and everybody comments on that. You're an expert now, federal lockup because you've been there halfway house. All these uh, People that were running for office commenting on Rikers Island never got locked up on uh, Rikers Island. Uh, I did. Oh, by the way, over and I over. could not agree with you more. One of the I was a member of the Judiciary Committee with the purse strings of the the Bureau of Prisons in my hand. I never once you would have had a you would have had to knock me unconscious and drag me to get me to go visit a, a prison. But if the judges saw that, if the politicians saw it, and by the way, once you're in there, it's not like you can just call your congressman. You know, being able to, you know, I now I frankly could because I actually knew the guy who represented that area for my time serving there. But getting back to the to the bail reform, the quandary of bail reform is that if when you identify inequities like that, that even the most conservative viewer would say, OK, yes, if we have 30 percent more people who are in the exact same criminal charge being sent, then you then you see why the legislature did what they did. But you're right. We should be somewhere where the other 49 states are with some way to make sure that we don't have that problem. Why not just do what Jersey did? It's working for them. Why try to reinvent it? Yes, some of the data about inequities is coming from Jersey. It's not so clear that it's it's perfect the the way it's running. But I don't think you should get rid of the risk analysis. Let's go to Peter, who's calling from Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Peter? Hi, how are you? Hi, Peter. Anthony, uh, I have a question for you. Um, nobody brought up the fact that you had 33,000 uh, emails from Hillary on your computer. And I'm sure you and your wife have separate computers. But what were you trying to what was she hiding? Yeah, well, the FBI knew this when they they claimed it. Um, the, it what I had on our shared computer was she had a backdrop of uh, a backup of one Blackberry. The Blackberry itself, the FBI had already. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a function. That was back in the day that. You didn't back up to the cloud. You backed up to your actual hard drive, and she at one point backed it up. It's funny. I we were try we were we were scratching our head about this at one point, and I think it was because she was trying to transfer from one BlackBerry to another. Is when technology wasn't as good as it is today. But the FBI had those. Comey went to went to to Capitol Hill, testified that they found thousands of emails, and then the next day he had to clear it up because he lied about it. Something that Comey apparently has done a lot in this case. But that's the story of the emails on my laptop. By the way, I still every once in a while have some guy yell at me in the street, where's the laptop? Where's the laptop? I mean, maybe I should be careful about saying this, but the laptop is sitting gathering dust in my in my closet somewhere. Because so it's have, not a Hunter Biden laptop it's that not, Rudy it's, ended up with. It's not, no, it's nothing. It's nothing like that. But, but one, let me ask you a question yeah. because you were right in the epicenter of that. Here's Julius Assange every day dropping. 
things, communications between the DNC. Uh, your wife uh, at the time, Huma, is the chief of staff for Hillary. She's running for president. The, 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 I think the co-chair of the campaign at right. the time, right? Every day, I mean, there's a tsunami of information. A lot of it personal. People are reading this. How did this affect you, Huma, Clintons, obviously Democrats that you knew because this was intense stuff. This is the kind of yeah. stuff that nobody wants to be out there in general public. Yeah, whatever book I may write someday, you're ruining it because you're asking all of the <laughs> stuff I was going to put in a book. Uh, here's, the, here's the crazy thing. I was in rehab. I was completely cut off. Mm. I knew nothing about any of it. I get this panic call. Um, I get this panic call. They call me in with the administrator of the facility. And I'm like, you know, I'm getting, I'm in the process where they're breaking you down and building you back up, but I have no access to information. And there's this big call going on, and apparently this is when the Comey letter came out about my laptop. I don't know. It was a joke. It was a joke. I had no idea what was going on. Now, my wife, who has an amazing book that's out, you should get her on the show one of these days, um, tells that story. Imagine being her at that moment. You're... Husband, we were on our way to being separated, is off at rehab. Your son is at home, a six-year-old, whatever it is. And she's trying to run a campaign. And we're finding out about some laptop in the investigation of Anthony Weiner's possible crime, you know, is revealed. The fact of the matter is I was oblivious to it all. I was I was in a, a facility in Tennessee, you know, doing doing therapy, doing 12-step work, praying every day and, and getting – Putting myself back together, I knew nothing about so it. So you're sure that Rudy Giuliani does not have that <laughs> laptop now? He got Hunter Biden's laptops. Yeah, I got to be careful. Our numbers, 1-800-848-9222. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. As we roll it up towards the 4 o'clock hour, the big story of the day is Kushner, the son-in-law of Donald Trump, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his Abraham Project. I must tell you, Anthony, as one uh, who was always thought of as a strong Zionist when you served in Congress, uh, I looked at that and I said, you're moving the embassy to Jerusalem, all hell is going to break loose. I was wrong. Uh, you're gonna get the you're gonna get the Sunnis together. That ain't gonna happen. And sit down and 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 break uh, unleavened bread with Israel. It happened. Is he entitled uh, to a real shot at the Nobel Peace Prize? I don't know. I, I don't. Who knows how that gets done? I think that Donald Trump was the worst president in American history. His record on issues important to for those of us who support Israel was quite good. I, I mean, I think that he they, they deserve credit. Now, some of it was the timing. Like for years and years, these so-called moderate Arab states say we can't really publicly be in partnership or at least in cooperation with Israel out of out of you know support for the, nominal support for the Palestinians. When what they should have been doing is really trying to help the Palestinians in a real concrete way by getting them to negotiate. Here. Putting that aside. I think that the Kushner does deserve credit for that. Now, I ultimately think that Israel benefits most by having a a country that cares about climate change, that takes care of its people, that is respected on the foreign stage, that that in ways that we were not during Trump years. But in terms of their record on Israel, yes, I don't know how how 
how Nobel Peace Prizes get to work. I think Katsimatidis should get a Nobel Peace Prize putting us together. You know, that's, that's for sure. That's actually uh, that's a that's a dynamic that we didn't <laughs> think we'd see in our lifetime. But now, since we're talking the Middle East, Persian Gulf, uh, looking at Iran, uh, Trump administration uh, ratcheted it up, put the screws to the Ayatollahs in Iran. Biden has gone back to the Obama uh, remedy, which is. Let's sit down. Let's negotiate the fact that you're not going to have nuclear weapons. They're going to have nuclear weapons. There's no doubt about it. It's almost impossible to prevent. And those countries that have given up their nuclear weapons, especially Gaddafi in Libya, uh, look at the results of that. Well, I got to tell you that his history's, history shows we can now go back and look. They were not doing any any developments of the nuclear weapon at the time that they were in the nuclear accords. They were having inspections come in there. Intelligence was saying to us, even people who opposed the accords to the intelligence said they weren't doing any development during that period. Since the accords have been lifted, they're back on a fast track. So I think we now have both the factuals. Both of them are not now they're not counterfactuals anymore. We have the facts. The accords were keeping the Iranians in a box. Now, were they doing these other things that were that we don't like exporting terrorism, everything else? Yes. But remember, the nuclear accords was to stop them from getting nuclear weapons. That's the existential threat to Israel. Um, We were better off under the accords. And then uh, for some Americans, the only war that they will ever experience is to watch the gridiron clash known as the Super Bowl. Los Angeles Rams versus the uh, Natty Boys from Cincinnati. You have a pick. I could. I don't really care. I like the idea that the Jets beat the Bengals and therefore by the transit of property, they'll be the second best team if the <laughs> Bengals win. I, I think I think the, the Bengals are going to get swamped here. I, I just I, you, you can't have a horrible offensive line and still, you know, I don't care how fancy this guy Burroughs is. And he seems like he's he's a real I mean, I look at him and I wonder why the Jets and Giants can't get a, a, a pick like him. But I, I kind of think L.A. is going to win it by 14 points. Well, I go with the Natty Boys. I've spent time in Cincinnati, uh, over the Rhine, uh, Vine Street. That's a tough city. They need something because, remember, nobody thought that they'd be uh, getting into the Super Bowl. And now that we're on the precipice of possibly uh, pitches and catches, uh, getting to uh, spring training, if the billionaire owners and the millionaire players can resolve their differences you got to be impressed uh, with your beloved New York Mets. For years, you were with Baseman Bertha there. Yeah, but we're in the they're in the sixth year of our three year plan. I'm a little bit concerned here, but I mean, look, what you can do in baseball that you really can't do in other sports is just throw money at the problem. We got a guy who's prepared to do it. I'm not a big fan of that guy, but I am. You know, we we now have we have a rotation that means that we should win a fair number of games this year. I don't want to jinx anything, but as I said uh, earlier, I think the Mets are going to win more games than the Yankees this year. Well, guess what? I'm a tried-and-true Yankee fan, cut my veins and arteries, I bleed Yankee pinstripes, and I hate the Mets. I've always hated the Mets. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, it's just a little uh, sort of uh, hors d'oeuvre of what you can expect every Saturday from 2 to 4. Remember... If you only heard part of this because you caught it towards the tail end, go to WABCRadio.com. You can get it on the podcast. It's Anthony Weiner on the left, yours truly, Curtis Lee on the right. And in a lot of instances, we end up meeting right in the center, and we agree to disagree.